Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial one 855 625 8610. If you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website and follow the link there. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up? A great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll-free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages and you can get it recorded onto a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. Theories and safety. In Adair versus United States in 1908, the Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional that part of the Erdman Act banning yellow dog contracts. State statutes against yellow dog contracts were overturned in Covich versus Kansas in 1915 and against minimum wage laws in Atkins versus Children's Hospital in 1923. Labor tactics of mounting consumer boycotts also came under attack by the courts. The AFL, because of its large membership, had made effective use of this strategy. A determinative legal contest over boycotting known as the Danbury Hatters case was fought tooth and nail in the lower courts before finally arriving at the Supreme Court in 1908. This saga had began in 1902 when the United Hatters of North America attempted to unionize D.E. Lau and Company of Danbury, Connecticut. The firm's owner, Dietrich Lowe, refused to acknowledge or meet with the union representatives, and the United Hatters struck. Lowe responded by hiring scabs to continue the manufacturing of hats, while the union retaliated by obtaining a list of Lowe's regular retail outlets and appealing to them not to carry Lowe's products. The Hatters also asked the AFL to put Lowe's name on the We Don't Patronize list, which ran in the AFL's journal, The American Federationist. In Lowe v. Lawler, in 1908, the Supreme Court ruled that the AFL's boycott constituted a restraint of trade under the Sherman Act. A powerful ruling with dire meaning for labor since neither the strike nor the boycott had physically interfered with Lowe's business. As disappointing as the ruling was, the plaintiff led to a lower court agreeing that, under the terms of the Sherman Act, Lowe was entitled to triple financial damages from the members of the United Hatters Local to the point of attaching their individual bank accounts and threatening to foreclose on more than 200 of the workers' homes. This decision was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1915. The AFL was involved in another court decision in Gompers versus 
Buck Stove and Range Company in 1911. The case started in 1906 when metal polishers at the St. Louis-based Bucks went out on strike over the firm's reneging on a nine-hour day that had been instituted in 1904. After the AFL called for a boycott of Bucks products, sales fell sharply. Company president J.W. Van Cleve, who was active in two national pro-business groups, joined with the American Anti-Boycott Association to secure a court injunction against the boycott. Once so broadly worded, it prohibited the AFL from even publicizing the strike. When the AFL, which planned to appeal, did not act swiftly enough to remove Buck's name from its published list of boycotted products, the firm pursued a criminal contempt citation which carried a potential punishment of 12 months jail sentence against Samuel Gompers and lesser sentences against John Mitchell, now an AFL vice president, and AFL secretary Frank Morrison. The Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia found the defendants guilty. Mitchell, vowing non-cooperation and declaring it the duty of all patriotic and law-abiding citizens to resist or at least disregard the injunction rather than submit to such arbitrary misuse of the law. It is better that half the working men of the country remain in jail, he said. The AFL defense was that a boycott was a form of free speech. The criminal case was eventually dropped. Even though we see anti-labor trend between the Pullman strike and the start of World War I, state legislatures did advance labor reform. One of the issues was child labor, maybe because it so glaringly needed regulations. This was because it was hammered into American conscience by an outspoken woman known as Mother Jones. In 1867, Mary Jones was living in Memphis with her husband, George Jones, a factory worker and member of William Silvis's International Iron Molders Union. When a yellow fever epidemic struck, taking the lives of George and all four of their children, she became caught up in the fervor of the numerous labor crises of the next two decades. Those were the days when we had no hall, when there were no high-salaried officers, no feasting with the enemies of labor. Those were the days of the martyrs and the saints, she would say decades later. Breaker boys as young as six and seven sat all day at the mouths of coal mines sorting anthracite from shell. Little girls tended spools in textile mills. They were paid a pittance and denied an education. Such facts prompted her in 1903 to lead a group of striking underage textile workers from Pennsylvania to the Oyster Bay, Long Island home of President Roosevelt. Mother Jones was irresistible to the press, whom she rewarded with such outlandish antics as placing working children in the cages of Frank Bostick's animal show at Coney Island. Fifty years ago, there was a cry against slavery, and men gave their lives to stop the selling of black children on the block. Today, the white child is sold for $2 a week to the manufacturer. By 1912, 38 states had adopted child labor laws, and in 1916, Congress passed the Keating-Owen Child Labor Act. 
although not until 1941 with the Supreme Court's upholding of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 would the employment of children younger than 16 become formally prescribed nationwide. In 1906, Gompers submitted a bill called Bill of Grievances to Congress, and in the presidential election year of 1908, he traveled to both parties' conventions in an attempt to influence them to include workers' rights in their respective platforms. Only the Democrats had agreed to do so. Four years later, Wilson, not Labor's first choice for the White House, but he wisely responded favorably to Labor's overtures. In 1909, he entered office with both houses of Congress in Democratic control. He reached out to Labor like no other president ever had, holding meetings with Labor to get their advice. He was the first to ever attend an AFL convention. Wilson honored an idea first presented by William Silvis and created the Department of Labor and in alliance with Gompers brought legislation before Congress that became the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, which at long last gave relief to unions from abusive injunctions under the Sherman Act. Unfortunately, in 1921, the Clayton Act's attempted insulation of labor from the Sherman Act was gutted by the Supreme Court in Duplex Printing Press Company versus During, in which the court upheld the notion that boycotts were a restraint of trade and were subject to injunction relief. At the same time, we saw the passage of the Kern-McGillicuddy Act of 1916, which established workers' compensation rights and release of the recommendations of the U.S. Commission on Industrial Relations, a bipartisan panel formed to review the nation's turbulent labor history and offer recommendations. This may have been the most radical document ever released by a federal commission. The report suggested tax reforms and both old age and unemployment insurance, citing labor unions favorably as checks on industrial autocracy. 1909-1911 brought more challenges, mainly the growth of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, or ILGWA a strike known as the Uprising of 20,000 and the Triangle Shirt Waste Fire. The ILGWU had both male and female members in New York. Work hours were typically 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. with a half-hour lunch break and half days on Saturday. Salaries were from $8 to $13 per week. Smaller shops pay piecemeal, forcing workers to work faster and stay late. Often workers were charged for the needles and thread used and the electricity, and some shops expected workers to provide their own sewing machines. In 1909, they went out on strike, starting at Rosen Brothers, who contracted out to contractors in manufacturing of its clothes. All went bad over the basic piece rate, they and the contractors would receive and pay. The contractors were able to convince the workers that it was not good for them, too. They walked out together. The ILGWU held a five-week work stoppage, resulting in Rosen Brothers to acknowledge the union, form a grievance committee, and a 20% pay rate increase. The next strike... Seeing how well it went was the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, Leisure Sons. The shirtwaist employees were 
mad as the company had started a company union which had played favorites with bonuses and when the company fired most of the workers who had met off-premises to discuss their grievances and said it was a seasonal issue but then hired new employees. Many of the businesses seeing the success of ILGWU with Rosen settled quickly, but Triangle was able to resist by shipping its work to two other factories in nearby towns. The ILGWU had support from the Women's Trade Union League, WTUL, a group of middle and upper class reformers. Some of the same people helped form the NWACP. On November 4th, Mary Dreyers, president of the WTUL and a wealthy champion of laboring women, was arrested on charges of assault. On the street before the triangle shirtwaist, she told a scab that there was a strike. Scab hit her with her fist, then complained to a cop who placed Dreyer under arrest. When they found out who she was, they released her. On November 22nd, members of the ILGWU and the WTUL held a meeting to consider a broader garment industry strike. Clara Limlick grew bored with speeches, leaped onto the stage, and exclaimed in Yiddish, I am a working girl, one of those who are on strike against intolerable conditions. I have listened to all the speakers, and I have no further patience for talk. I'm the one who feels and suffers from the things pictured. What we are here for is to decide whether we shall or shall not strike. I offer resolution that general strike be declared now. The vote quickly passed, and the next day, 15,000 garment workers walked off the job. On November 26, in front of the J.M. Cohen and Company factory, a fight between female scabs and female workers broke out when the police arrived to disperse an Amazonian attack, they had to rescue the single male participant who was glad to be arrested. By Christmas, nearly 800 arrests had been made. Since December, the National Civic Federation had been offering to broker a resolution to the strike, suggesting a board of arbitration, two from industry, two from labor, and two from the public, agreed by all four. Management offered a 52-hour work week, some paid holidays, shop committee to help set rates and wages, but since they would not recognize the union, the offer was rejected. In January, the workers started to return to work as individual shops made agreements with the union, and on February 13th, the strike officially ended. The ILGWU's membership went from 500 to 20,000 in just six months. But already a second strike was being talked about. This strike was different as the workers would not be allowed to deal with separate shops and industry-wide recognition of the ILGW was demanded. The strike was led by ILGWU Clark Makerson, and started on July 7, 1910. 75,000 workers walking off the job, not just in New York City, but other nearby cities and large manufacturing hubs like Philadelphia and Cleveland. A new concept was developing that would affect the strike called scientific management. A belief that prosperity for the employer cannot exist 
through a long-term years unless it is accompanied by prosperity for the employee. In 1908, Brandeis made legal history in a labor-related case before the Supreme Court, Mueller v. Oregon. Mueller was fined $10 for making a female employee work more than 10 hours a day allowed by state law at his laundry business. He appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, which confirmed his conviction. Brandeis argued that a woman's mater maternal responsibilities made long hours of work potentially injurious, and that as the bearers of children, women workers' physically well-being was a matter of public interest and could be state-regulated. Bandis was eager to help his friend who owned a business that sold, among other things, clothes made by those strikers. But he warned his friend, Lincoln Villainy, that he did not agree with closed shops. He suggested that easier matters of disagreement between labor and management be dealt with first to create a sense of collaboration. Both sides became angry of the closed shop issue when it was finally discussed, but Brandeis suggested a preferential shop defined as one which owners would give preference to hiring union members where qualified union hires were available. The owners were willing, but ILGWU, being caught off guard, left the meeting. The owners announced the intent to import scabs protected by special detectives. The one bright spot in this was a new mayor in New York, William Gaynor, who was less tolerant of rough police tactics. Brandeis contacted and got assistance in bringing labor and management back to the negotiation table by banker Jacob Schiff, corporate lawyer Louis Marshall, chief of the American Jewish Committee Herbert Lehman of Lehman Brothers, banker Felix Warburg, labor and management agreed to a slightly modified preferential shop agreement. But some of the rank and file did not want to accept the deal, so the judge enforced the injunction. This forced the mayor to issue orders to the police to arrest any strikers. On September 2nd, the ILGWU voted to accept the agreement, which included all previous issues agreed on earlier and became known as the Protocol of Peace. The Triangle Shirtwaist Company was able to resist the ILGWU through both the 1909 and 1910 strikes. On March 25th, there was between 600 to 700 employees present at the Triangle Factory and its offices when at 4.40 p.m., a fire started in the corner of an eighth-floor workroom where scraps of unused fabric were collected. At first, it appeared containable. Five precious minutes passed as workers tried to put it out before someone called in an alarm. Panic as workers tried to flee. The door to the stairway had been locked from the other side, so most tried to use the single elevator that was working. The workers on the 10th floor received a call from the 8th floor. They exited to the roof 
um, and escaped to the roof of the New York University Law School building. The ninth floor workers had no escape route. The company locked the stairway doors to prevent workers leaving early, taking unauthorized breaks, and stealing fabric. And this was crucial to the disaster. The sole elevator crowded full of fleeing eighth floor workers never made it to the ninth floor. Seeing this, some other workers on the ninth floor jumped to the top of the elevator car. Later, their burned and crushed bodies were found. The single fire escape was flimsy. A fire marshal later stated it would have taken three hours to empty the employees out that way. A policeman, one of the first on the scene, saw a bundle of fall to the street and assumed someone in the factory was trying to save valuable cloth. It took several minutes and the arrival of more bundles before he realized they were human bodies. Firemen could do nothing but watch since their ladders and hoses only reached the sixth floor. One reporter wrote, I looked upon the heap of dead bodies and remembered these were the shirtwaist makers. I remember their great strike of last year in which these same girls had demanded more sanitary conditions, more safety precautions in the shops. These dead bodies were their answer. 146 people, mostly young women, garment workers, whose average age was 19, had perished. On April 2nd, 3,500 people attended a memorial service for the victims. Rose Schneiderman said, We have tried, you citizens. We are trying you now. And you have a couple of dollars for the sorrowing mothers, brothers, and sisters by the way of charity gift. But every time the workers come out, the only thing they know is to protest against the conditions which are unbearable. The strong hand of the law is allowed to press down heavily upon us. I can't talk fellowship to you who are gathered here. Too much blood has been spilt. I know from experience it is up to working people to save themselves. The owners, Isaac Harris and Max Blank, were put on trial. Both were acquitted in 1915. Civil suits against the owners were settled with the survivor's family, receiving $75 per victim. But 100000 in private donations were given to the families. By shaming businesses' tired argument that it had the right to police itself, the Triangle Fire became the impetus for one of labor's signature achievements in the progressive era, a crusade to enact enforceable laws to curb industrial negligence. On March 24, 1911, the New York Court of Appeals had quashed the state's workers' compensation law in the case of Ives versus South Buffalo Railway Company, terming it plainly revolutionary for its attempt to place liability on employers in case of industrial accidents. President Roosevelt had echoed reformers in urging the passage of state workers' compensation laws, and eventually industry gave its support, seeing it as a way to manage its liability as a cost of doing business, as seeing it also as a way to minimize individual lawsuits. 
Led by Wisconsin, 25 states enacted such laws between 1911 and 1921. Labor was concerned that employees could amortize the financial risk of worker injuries and would not be motivated to improve factory safety. This drawback would be addressed only in the 1930s when states adopted experience rating, meaning their cost of workmen's compensation would raise with every accident claim. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights.com at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. (laughs) 